Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the uh, pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 13, as we work through a long and difficult passage. Next week, we're going to be in Romans 8, which is one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible. But today, we have to do a bunch of uh, tongue twisters, I do not do what I want to do kind of stuff today that we're going to be working through. Let me open us with a word of prayer before we get into this text. Father, we thank you that you're good and that you... uh, Uh, shepherd us and that you care for us uh, and that you love us. And I ask that you would uh, send your spirit and that he would encourage our hearts as we study the scriptures. Uh, And we thank you for Christ who has lived the life that we should have lived, who has uh, died the death that we deserve to die. And so we ask that you would bless this time. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me start with a little uh, illustration. So I uh, worked with a guy one time who had a coffee mug, okay? And on this coffee mug, he had a Bible verse from Luke 13. Okay? In Luke 13, there's this woman who's hunched over, and in the King James Version of the Bible, Jesus says to this woman, woman, thou art loosed, okay? meaning you're free, you're set free, you're not shackled by this infirmity anymore. And so he had this coffee mug, but over time, for some reason, the D on the word loosed slowly started to rub off, and so it ended up saying, woman, thou art loose. Okay? Very different meaning, very different meaning from Luke 13. Okay? Sometimes one letter can make all the difference in understanding what is going on and understanding what a text is saying. That is absolutely true today as we get into uh, and continue in Romans 7. In Romans 7, you're going to keep seeing the word I. One little letter, just like that D. One little letter, I. I do this. I don't want to do this. My flesh is like this. I, 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 I. And there is a big debate in Christianity of who this I is. If you want to know more about that, we talked about that some last week. Let me give you a summary, though, of the two prevailing opinions, okay? The question is, is Paul here, when he says I, talking about an unbeliever or talking about a believer? Is it I, Paul, as an apostle today as a Christian, or is it I, Paul, when I was a Pharisee, when I was lost, when I was under the Mosaic law? Those are the big debates, okay? Those are the big debates. When Paul says I, is he talking about a believer or a non-believer, okay? So everybody put on your theologian hats because we're going to go over a bunch of text real quick before I give you my view, but it's important that we understand who this I is lest we end up carrying around that coffee mug, okay? So first, there are some people that say, and this is the majority position, that say that the Apostle Paul here is talking about the life of a Christian. He's talking about the life of a believer. I want to show you some text here in Romans 7 that would go against this idea, though. So first, Romans 7, 5 through 6. If you've got your Bible, you'll need it, but we're going to throw the text up on the screen. Look what it says. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That text just said... We used to be in the flesh, we've died to that, we've died to Mosaic law, and now we're free. That seems to go against the idea that Paul is talking about a believer. Romans 7, 10 through 11 says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Here it seems very clear that Paul's talking about the past. It was in the past when the law killed me, it was in the past when sin killed me, but now as a Christian I walk by the Spirit. Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Is that your identity, by the way, as a Christian? 
Is your identity that you're one that is sold under sin, that you're of the flesh? The Apostle Paul just spent all of chapter 6 saying no, that your master is now Christ. No longer is it the flesh. No longer is it sin. So that seems to go against the idea that this is talking about a believer. Romans 7, 18 through 19 says this, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Is that true of a believer? That you don't have the ability to resist sin? That you have to keep doing this particular sin? That you can't say no to it? So you might say, well, Zach, Paul's not talking about his role as a Christian. He's saying in his flesh he can't do this. The problem with that is Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Romans 7, 23 But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, look at this next phrase, and making me a captive, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Is that true of a believer that you're held captive to the law of sin? Doesn't seem to be the case. In addition to that, you have all of chapter 8. The uh, chapter and verse divisions in your Bible, those are man-made. Those are not there in original manuscripts. The text would just go as one flow. When you get into chapter 8, it says things like this, Romans 8, 7 through 9. Look at the contrast here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, that seems to be a contrast. This is how you used to be in the flesh under the Mosaic law, but now you walk by the Spirit, okay? All of this would point against the idea that this is talking about Paul the believer, that this is talking about the Christian life. In addition to that, verses 7, 23, and 25 show Paul wrestling with following the Mosaic law. So if you say, Zach, I'm still not convinced. I think that this passage is about a Christian struggling with sin. I'll say this passage isn't about struggling with sin. It's about struggling with sin under the Mosaic law. Anybody in here just really struggling to not eat pork or not wear certain kinds of garments or to take a year of Jubilee? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about, in context, the Mosaic law. He's talking about the law of the Old Testament, okay? So that's on one side. Whew, that's a lot, okay? That's a lot. Everybody just shake it out, relax. All I'm trying to say is some people think this is about a believer, but there's a lot of problems with that, okay? Now, others will say that this is about Paul as a lost person. This is about Paul as a representative of Jews under the Mosaic law, but there's problems with that view as well. Let me give you some verses on that. First of all, I want you to know in verse 14, the text shifts to the present tense. It's almost like Paul was talking about his life under sin, but now he's talking about his life now, okay? Romans 7.25 ends in a strange way. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You think that's where the text would end? And then he continues, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Why not just end on that positive note, Paul? Why are you ending on this fact that you were saved by Christ, but you still talk about this war between the flesh and the spirit? Seems to say that this might actually be about a believer, okay? Romans 7, 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What some people will say here is that there seems to be a duality in this text. There seems to be this tension between Paul being righteous and Paul not being righteous, this tension between the spirit and the flesh. And they'll say, see, that points to the fact that this actually might be a believer. Romans 7.22 says this, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That has to be a believer, right? Lost people don't delight in God's law. 
Lost people don't want to do what's right. Lost people don't want to follow God. So the fact that Paul here is saying that he delights in God's law, that he wants to do what's right, means it must, he must be a believer. Okay? Romans 7.14. Here's how people will take that if they uh, believe that this is talking about a believer. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. What they'll say there is the first part of that phrase, for we know that the law is spiritual, includes Paul. And that second part of the phrase includes Paul. The people that know the law is spiritual would include Paul, and the fact that Paul talks about being of the flesh would include Paul, and they'll say, see, he's both at the same time. He's both at the same time, okay? So I say all of that to say this. Romans 7 is super difficult. Romans 7 is super tricky. Some people think that it's talking about a lost person before they come to know Christ. Some people think it's talking about the life of a believer, and it's not very clear. Last week it was clear because Paul was talking about his past. This week it's not quite as clear. So, let me give you my position. You ready? The reason the text is unclear is because it's not trying to answer the question, who is the I? The reason the text is unclear is because Paul is just trying to talk about the Mosaic law. He's just trying to say, anytime someone tries to follow God's law, who's a sinner, they can't keep it. That's all he's trying to say. So the reason it's so difficult is because Paul's probably not trying to bifurcate out and try to separate these two ideas. In Paul's mind, he probably remembers what it was like being a Jew, not able to keep the law. And even today, he would still feel that tension as he's writing Romans, that tension in that pull of sin. And so the problem is that we're simply asking the wrong question. It's a category mistake. It's like when your kids come up and they're like, Daddy, what color is time? Right? The answer is if they're a boy, blue. If they're a girl, pink. But the question doesn't make any sense. Time doesn't have a color. So when we're saying, we have to know who the eye is, maybe the reason it's ambiguous is because Paul is not concentrating on that. So here's all you have to remember after my 10 minutes of rambling. Ready? The eye is unclear in Romans 7 because the focus is on anyone who's trying to submit the flesh to the Mosaic law, how it brings condemnation. Your only hope is in Christ. You cannot keep God's rules good enough. You cannot keep God's rules good enough. Let me show you a quote. I brought this up last week, but I think it's really helpful. It comes from a New Testament scholar named Dan Wallace. The apostle is speaking as universal man and is describing the experience of anyone who attempts to please God by submitting the flesh to the law. By application, this could be true of an unbeliever or a believer. The present tenses then would be gnomic. That's just a fancy literary term that means pertaining to general principles. Not historical, for they refer to anyone and describe something that is universally true. That's my view. My view is that the eye is somewhat ambiguous. If you put a gun to my head and you said, Zach, who is the eye? I would just say, pull the trigger. But if I survived that and you did it again, I would say that the eye is probably Paul speaking as a lost person. I think that the case is stronger in this text. The, 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 the power that sin has in this text, where it defines you, it takes you captive, you're not able to resist it, that seems too strong to be of a believer. Do believers still struggle with sin? Yes! That's just not what Romans 7 is talking about. That's just not what Romans 7 is talking about. So, with all that in mind, now let's get into the text. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me give you the interpretation. Here's what verse 13 is saying. God's law is good, but sin uses it to intentionally rebel against God and bring about death. God's law is good. The law doesn't really kill you. Sin kills you. The law excites sin, and sin brings about death. So let me give you some examples. <clears throat> is a car a good thing? Yes or no? Yes, most of you probably drove one on your way here or rode in one. 
Is it good if you're just stone-cold drunk? No, okay? Is salt a good thing? Yes, 80% of my diet is salt, okay? The other 20% is like Red Bull, okay? I'm on a strict diet of sodium and Red Bull. Salt is good. Is it good, though, if you have high blood pressure? Or if you're a slug, right? No, okay? Uh, Is wine good? Yes, the Bible says that God made wine to make men's hearts glad. Is wine good? Is it good, though, if you're an alcoholic? No, you see, in each of these examples, the first thing, the thing in the first category is good, but because of the status of the people in the second category, it's not good for them. Is God's Mosaic law good? Yes or no? Yes. Is it good for sinners that cannot keep it? No, it is not. So the problem is not with God. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with us. It's with our brokenness. It's with our sin. Verse 13 says something that's really fascinating. Ready? God gives rules for different reasons than we give rules, okay? So there are a bunch of rules in my household, especially for my son. Don't stick your tongue in the electrical socket. Don't push down your sister, etc. There are these rules, okay? When I give my son a list of rules, two things about these. One, I'm wanting him to obey them and be able to keep them. And two, I don't give him impossible rules. I've never gone up to my son and I'm like, you better levitate. You better levitate right now or you're going to be in so much trouble if you don't start floating. Never done that, right? When God gives his Mosaic law, here's what's interesting. One, he doesn't give it so that we might pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and climb on this moral ladder to God. And two, he gives us things we cannot keep because of our sin nature that it is impossible to live perfectly as God demands, which is why you need the God-man to do it on your behalf, okay? That God gives his law for a different reason. It's to show us how bad we are so that we might seek a Savior. Now, look at the end of the verse where it says that uh, the, the commandments were given, that sin might become sinful beyond measure. That phrase there, um, beyond measure, is a Greek phrase. It's kath hyperbole, okay? We, that's where we get our word hyperbole. Okay, now don't read the English definition back onto the Greek. That would be backwards. The idea here of what it's saying is that the law makes sin more sinful. It exaggerates sin. You knew you were rebelling against God, but then when he gives his law and it's in black and white, now you're like, oh man, I'm intentionally rebelling against God. It makes it more obvious, okay? The times I am most tempted to laugh are when I'm not supposed to laugh. Anybody else? Right? So you will be in a job interview or something, and they'll be like, Zach, tell us what you do do. I'm like, right? Or my kids will be acting up, and I don't want to laugh while they're getting in trouble, but it it makes it funnier, right? I'm the kind of guy that laughs at a funeral, okay? Can't understand what I mean, you soon will. Uh, Or like in a staff meeting, we'll be having a serious staff meeting, and Tim and I, I'll look over at Tim, he'll make a face, and we'll start giggling like a couple of schoolgirls, because we're not supposed to be laughing in that moment. That's what the Mosaic Law does, okay? It says, don't laugh, and then we're like, And it just makes us want to do it more. Don't commit adultery. Oh, man, I see all these beautiful women. Don't have idols. Oh, man, I love these things as much as God. These kind of things. That's what the law does. There's actually a comedian I like, and he tells a uh, pretty funny story. He's talking about, you know those Under Armour shirts? They're like real tight. They're almost like spandex Under Armour shirts. He says, I look better with no shirt than I look with that shirt on. Because that shirt is tight, it just shows off the worst parts of you. Okay? That's what the law does. The Mosaic Law is an Under Armour shirt, and if you haven't been working out, it shows it, all right? It shows it. I found something uh, this week on social media as I was preparing for this lesson that I thought was an excellent example of the Mosaic Law and what Paul is saying here. So we're going to throw a picture up on the screen for you. 
This is a sign at Staples. Staples is an office supply store. And it simply says, please do not try out the markers or highlighters on the wall. Do you see that? And people have written all over the wall, all over the sign. One guy even wrote, okay, with an exclamation point. Okay? That's what the Mosaic Law does. God says, don't do this. And because we're sinful, our sin says, I have to do it. That's what I have to break. That's what I have to break. Okay? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. What does that mean? What he's saying is that there's a difference between what the law is inherently and what humans are post-fall, post-Genesis 3. Mankind was not made sinful, but post the fall we inherit original sin. That there's a difference between what the law is inherently and what uh, humans are inherently. The law is inherently good, and we, post-fall, are inherently sinful. Okay? He's talking about what's inherently true. So a mountain is inherently heavy. A grain of rice is inherently light. Clowns are inherently creepy. Boy bands are inherently stupid. God's law is inherently spiritual. It comes from God. It's good. We, being sinners, are inherently evil. And so this text wants to point that out, okay? Now it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Let me explain something about where he says, but I am of the flesh. Words don't just have one meaning, okay? Does everybody understand that? Words don't just have one meaning. The word run, for example, can mean multiple things. You can go for a run, you can run for office, your nose can run. Words can mean all kinds of things. Dictionaries are not God, Merriam-Webster's not God. He doesn't get to define what everything means. What a dictionary does is it gives you a list of possible meanings of how words are used in a potential context, okay? So a dictionary describes what's going on in the world. It doesn't prescribe what's going on, okay? So words have several different meanings. Every time a word is used, its meaning changes slightly depending on the context, okay? Sometimes when the word flesh is used, it just means humanity, Right? So when the Bible says that, and the Word became flesh, what he's saying is that Jesus, who's always been God, takes on humanity while remaining God. Okay? In that sense, flesh just means humanity. But other times when the word flesh is used, it means that sinful part of us, that broken part of us, that corruption that often manifests itself in our lives. In the Bible, we use phrases like the lust of the flesh. Okay? In this case, the Apostle Paul is not saying the law is ethereal but I have a body. He's saying the law is inherently good, and he's using flesh in that second sense. He's saying, but I am broken. I am sinful. I am fleshly because I'm born with original sin. Now, look at the last little phrase here in this, uh, this verse, sold under sin. Notice our state before Christ. We're not merely sinners. We're not merely broken. Sin owns us before Christ. Before Christ is our master, it's not that we have no master. Sin is our master. Sin owns us. We are a slave to sin. You get to choose which sins you want to do, but as a lost person, you don't get to choose to not sin. You can only truly resist sin through the work of the Spirit. And so this text says, this is one of the reasons I think it's Paul talking about his life as an unbeliever, that he was sold under sin, okay? Verses 15 through 16. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. What is this saying? Here's what this is saying. Paul agrees that he should not sin and that the Mosaic law was good, but he was unable to keep it. But he was unable to keep it. Now, now hear me. Sin is slavery. 
Sin pushes you farther than you want to go. Sin always overdrafts the account. Sin always writes a hot check. Sin always pushes you further than you want to go. This is why you can't play with sin. You can't manage your sin. You have to put it to death because eventually it will outgrow you and it will eat you. When sin is full, bro- full grown, it leads to death, okay? So you, cannot ma- you can't just put your idols in a closet. You have to take a hammer to those idols. You have to fight sin with every fiber of your being. But what the Apostle Paul here is showing is how sin, though he's wanting to resist it, he's unable to when he's lost, and it, it takes over. So I'll give you an example. This is the image that kind of came to mind as I was going through, uh, through this text. Do you guys know who Venom is from Spider-Man? All the kids are shaking their head. Everybody else is like, what are you talking about? Okay, let me back up. I'm about to say some things about superheroes. If you are a big superhero fan, comic book fan, don't email me, okay? I don't care. I don't care, okay? Uh, I don't like, there's some superheroes I like, some that I don't like. This will get into the Venom and Sin thing, so bear with me. I don't like Superman, okay? He's too much of a goody two-shoes for me, and he's too powerful, He's like infinite, man. I'll just zap you with my lasers. Now I'll look through stuff. Bullets bounce off my chest. I can run. I can fly. I can divide by zero. I can just do everything, okay? So I don't really like Superman. I don't like other weird ones like Aquaman. I could totally whoop Aquaman. You know why? Because I'm not in water right now, right? You just fight him on the land and all his dolphin whispering doesn't matter. I like Batman. Do you know why? Because Batman is somewhat realistic. He's got a dark past, He has pain in his life, and there could really be a Batman. If you were a billionaire and you had like a sassy British, you know, uh, what is it called? Butler. I almost said manservant, but that's not right. (laughs) You had a sassy butler, and you just like learned a ton of karate. Like you practiced karate like super hard in your basement all day long. You could be Batman. Or as one friend of mine said, and I quote, I like things that are real. That's why I like Batman. (laughs) Growing up, though, the superhero that I most watched was Spider-Man, okay? I would get up on Saturday mornings, and I would watch Spider-Man. Now, Spider-Man has this frenemy. He has this, like, friend who's also his enemy, and his name is Venom. Now, here's who Venom is. Again, if you're a comic book nerd, I don't know anything about this, so just ignore that. Venom is this guy, this alien life form comes to Earth. It's like this chocolate pudding-looking tar stuff, and he starts playing with it with his fingers, and all of a sudden, it starts taking over his whole body, Okay? That's like sin. What it does is once he's got that suit on, it forces him to do things he doesn't want to do. In one sense, he wants to do it, but in another sense, he doesn't want to do it. He just started touching that little goo, and it just took over his whole body, and now there's this torn, now there's this this pressure. That's kind of the image that comes to mind here, that Paul is saying, as a good Jew, I agree that the Mosaic law is good, but for whatever reason, I can't keep it. You feel that tension. You feel that pull of sin, and that's what he's talking about here in verses 15 through 16. Verses 17 through 20. This is a bit of a tongue twister. So now it is no longer I who do do sin, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay? Okay? Red leather, yellow leather. There's a kind of a tongue twister here that's difficult. Here's what Paul is saying in these verses. Because of my sinful nature, I want to follow God's law, but I'm unable to do so, and therefore sin prompts me to act sinfully instead. Okay? Now let me show you a few things here. Look at verse 17. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then look at the end of verse 20. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells 
within me. What is Paul saying here? Because superficially, it looks like he's saying, I don't do the sinning, the sin does the sinning, right? Doesn't that look like what he's saying? It's not really my fault, it's, it's sin's fault, okay? That's not what he's saying. Listen, he's not saying that he's not culpable. He's not saying that he's not committing sins, okay? What he's saying is that there is another actor at play, that there is another element that is going on. Let me give you an example. Let's say that there's a guy who's addicted to methamphetamine, okay? There's a guy who's a meth head. He's addicted to meth. And you go up to him and you say, do you know that meth is bad? He'll say, yes. And if you said, do you want to stop doing it? He would say, yes. And if you said, don't you believe that you're still culpable and morally accountable for doing this meth? He would say, yes. And if you said, is there a way to be free from it? He would say, yes. There are people that have broken meth addictions and these kind of things. But it's so much harder for him because there's also that chemical addiction element that's going on. It's still sin, but there's another element at play, okay? There's another element at play. And so what Paul is saying is this. Paul is not saying he's not really guilty, he's not really culpable. What he's saying is, I realize that there is another element at play. Just like the meth addict is sinning, but is also very much drawn to the sin because of his condition, so a sinner is still sinning, but very much drawn to that condition by their original sin. So he's not trying to excuse himself. He's just trying to say, there's another thing that's going on that's not so simple. There's another thing that makes it difficult. The difference is, is that a meth addict can actually become clean of this, but nobody can be clean of the, of the drug of sin without Christ, without Christ, okay? Look at verse 19. I'm so sorry. Look at verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. This is an implicit support of the doctrine of what is called total depravity, okay? We believe in total depravity. If you don't believe me, go back and read Romans 3. What is total depravity? Total depravity is not that you're as bad as you could be. We could all be Hitler, okay? Total depravity is that you cannot do any good in God's eyes, that we are so corrupted by sin. It's corrupted all of us. It's corrupted our, our flesh, our mind, our will, our emotions. It's corrupted all of us. And so because we're broken in sin, we cannot please God until we become believers. Before Christ, it's not just that we sinned. It's that all we did was sin. The Bible says anything not done in faith is sin. Even as you're helping a little old lady across the street, you're not doing so for God's glory. And in that sense, it's sin. And so what the Bible here is going to say is, in mankind's unregenerate state, in our flesh, we cannot do good before God. It is only by the power of the Spirit post-conversion that we can. Let me mention one more thing about these verses before we move on. Let me ask you this question. Can you be good without God? Can you be good without God? There are a lot of professors, atheistic philosophy professors and stuff that will write about being a moral atheist or how you can be good without God. A few problems I have with that. The first one is the word good in that sense loses all meaning. If there is not a meta ethic, if there's not a standard of goodness, then all you're saying is I can either do things that society approves of or I do things that society doesn't approve of. Okay? That's all you can say. If there's not an actual standard of good, you can only do things that society approves of or that society condemns. And the problem with that is then it depends on what society you're in, what's good or what's bad. If it's 1943 and you live in Nazi Germany, well, all of a sudden, everybody's opinion about Jews is a little bit different. Okay? But there's another problem with this, and that's, and this is big, 
you can't without the Spirit. Those in the flesh do not submit to God's law, and quote, they're not even able to do so. You need God to, one, for good to even mean anything, but two, to be able to do any acts of righteousness. It's only the Spirit within you. I'm not saying as a lost person you can't do acts that society would say were good. I'm saying in God's eyes you can't do good before Christ. Verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's what Paul means. Paul sees two guiding principles at odds with each other. His mental assent that the law is good and his actions of rebelling against that law. Okay? Now, let me ask you this question. If you look in this text, do you see in verse 21 where it says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, notice he says he wants to do what's right, And then look at verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, okay? What some people will say is that this can't be about a lost person. This has to be about a believer because he's saying he wants to do what's right and he wants to follow God's law, okay? I don't think, though, that that's a correct interpretation, and here's why. He's not saying that in God's eyes he actually is doing these things. He's speaking as a Jew who would have had reverence for the Mosaic law. Let me give you some passages. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119-35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Jews would have all said they delight in God's law, whether they did in their heart or not. As a Jew, they would have recited these psalms, and they would have said, I delight in God's law. Sometimes the Bible describes things from our vantage point, and it, it, it can sound a little bit different. So, so let me give you an example. In, uh, in Philippians 3.6, Paul says this about himself. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Does that mean that in God's eyes, Paul was literally blameless and had never broken a law? No. He's meaning in Paul's eyes, he's blameless, right? In Paul's eyes, he's saying, I was a pretty good Jew. Or look at Romans uh, 10.2. For I bear them witness, these are lost Jews that don't know Christ, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Wait a second. Are we saying that they actually have a zeal for God? How can you have a zeal for God if you're not a believer? Paul's not saying they actually have zeal. He's saying to them, in their eyes, they seem to have zeal. In the same way, Paul is not saying that when he was a sinner, he actually loved God. What he's saying is, as a Jew, he would still confess that God's law is good and God's law is right and that he wanted to do it, even though deep down in his sin, he didn't. Okay? Now, let me say something else. I am not saying that Christians today do not struggle with sin. So everybody look at me. As I'm supporting this idea that the person in Romans 7 is someone who's lost, some of you might be freaking out. You might be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I I struggle with sin. There are things that I don't want to do that I I do, and I, I don't know what's happening. Listen, Christians struggle with sin. If you're someone who struggles with sin, that's everybody. That's a Christian. You will never fully conquer sin this side of eternity. Its power has been crushed in your life, but its presence has not been removed, okay? But all I'm saying is we don't get that from this text. We get that from other texts in the Bible, like Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So it's true that we do feel this tension, this flesh-spirit tension. I just don't think that's the main thrust 
of Romans 7, as Paul's writing to Jews about the Mosaic law in his past, saying we're enslaved to sin. Okay? Is that clear as mud? Okay, another thing. Let's read verses 21 through 23 again. Count how many times the word law occurs. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul, get a thesaurus, all right? The word law is very, very tricky in these few verses because it changes meaning several times. He's meaning different things by law several times. So let me give you what he's meaning in each one. In verse 21, when he says law, he means general rule or general principle, okay? In verse 22, he means mosaic law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay? And then in verse 23, the first time law is said, it means authority. The second time, it means mosaic law, and then it means authority again at the end. What does that mean? Let me read it to you with this interpretation, okay? Let's read that passage again, and I'm going to interpret each case of law to make something that's very technical as simple as possible. You ready? So I find it to be a general principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the Mosaic law in my inner being. But I see in my members another authority waging war against the the Mosaic law and making me captive to the authority of sin that dwells in my members. Here's what Paul's trying to say. There is this tension between what he assents to is good, what he assents to in God's word, and the pull of sin. That's all he's trying to say. Okay? That's all he's trying to say. Verses 24 through 25a. We're almost done. I know this text is long. I'll give you more superhero stuff at the end if you can hang on. I'm kidding. I don't have any, I don't have any more. I like the Punisher. I like the Punisher. He's just an angry Marine who kills bad guys. Okay? That's, a, that's, a super, that's a superpower. Okay. Verses uh, 24 through 25a. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our, Christ our Lord. This text means that we're wretched and we're enslaved to sin, but Christ delivers us from that. Okay, now I want to make a few comments about this verse because I'm going to come back to it in the end because there's a lot of good gospel truths in this, but I want to just say a few things up front. Number one, I want you to see the Trinitarian reference here. You see that God is mentioned, in that case meaning God the Father, through Jesus Christ, you see the Son, and in a few verses later, you actually see the Spirit. So you see all three members of the Godhead there. But what he's saying is this. Paul recognizes his wretched estate as a sinner who cannot keep the Mosaic law. He realizes his hope is in Christ, and it is in Christ that his identity is changed, that he is transformed. I heard a pastor one time who was uh, giving a story. It was a pastor. He got saved in college, okay? He got saved in college. He wasn't a Christian. He lived wickedly before that. He was reading the Bible one day at his campus. He became a Christian, and uh, he was telling a story. He said, it was a Friday night, and I got invited to two different events. He said, I got invited to a party where there would be booze and there would be drugs. And he said, and I got invited to a Bible study. He said, as I was walking across the campus on my way to the Bible study, I thought to myself, what happened to me? Since when is this what I choose? Now, is there a sense in which he's still tempted towards that other thing? Sure, but his identity has changed. His highest desire has changed. As a lost person, your highest desire is self. Your highest desire is sin. As a Christian, your highest desire is Christ, though sometimes you have lesser desires towards sinful things. But we're going to come back to this few verses in just a second. Lastly, verse 25b. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's what Paul's saying. Before conversion, 
Paul mentally agrees that God's law is good, but he served sin instead. Okay? What you find in Romans 7 is this. Something that the, uh, the Protestant reformers, they had a famous Latin phrase, specifically Luther, and here was the phrase, ready? That Christians are simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. What does that mean? In Latin, that's simultaneously justified and a sinner. So let me ask you this question. Is a Christian a sinner, yes or no? The answer is yes and no. It depends on what you mean. Again, words don't just have one meaning, okay? If you mean, do Christians still commit sin in our daily lives, the answer is yes, we're sinners, okay? If you mean, what is our identity, though? How does God see us? The way God sees us is no longer as a sinner, that we are saints and not sinners, that we are saints who sin. We're not sinners who sin. So it depends on what you mean. If you mean, do we practically commit sin? Yes, we're sinners. If you mean the God of the universe, whose thoughts are the most real thing in the world, says that you are not guilty, that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are in Christ, and that you are perfect, then no, you're not a sinner. And it's important that you hold both of these truths together. If you think that you don't actually have a lot of sin and darkness in your heart, you don't lack sin, you lack self-awareness. Our hearts are depraved, they are broken, the things we think, the things we want to do. If you don't see it, ask others to pull it out of you. Ask others to, to point out some places where you can grow, okay? But on the other hand, if you don't realize that your identity is not as a sinner, that your identity is a beloved son or daughter of God, then what happens is you start to uh, be all depressed and sad and condemning, and you think that God loves you one day and he doesn't the other day. He's like plucking that pedal, and he's like, he loves me, he loves me not. And that's not true either, okay? You have to hold this tension between knowing that in your day-to-day life you commit sins, but that is no longer your identity. And it is by focusing on your identity that you actually grow and become more and more holy. Okay? Let me give you an example. So, when I turned 18, legally, in the state's eyes, I became an adult. Right? I could join the military or I could be tried for murder as an adult. I used to be able to kill all these people when I was just a kid and just get kid jail. But now I get adult jail because I'm uh, over 18. And in the state's eyes, my status is as an adult. Right? Does that status ever change? Do I ever go back to being a kid in the state's eyes? No, I'm an adult until I die, okay? Does that, though, mean that there aren't times in my life where I act childishly? Of course not. I act childishly all the time. In college, I remember we had a buddy that uh, just made a ton of money somehow, and so he would just pay us to do stupid stuff. He'd be like, I'll give you 30 bucks if you'll drink that Tabasco sauce. And we're like, I need some gas, okay, (laughs) right? Or he paid one of my buddies, like, I'll give you 30 bucks to jump off your balcony. We're like, uh, if he doesn't get hurt, he's made 30 bucks. If he has to go to the ER, that'll be like 500,000 bucks. And so we would do this. My favorite is that we, uh, he, he tried to pay a roommate of mine. There was this big pond. So I had these roommates in college. We, we had this apartment. There was this huge public pond, and it was no swimming, and it was nasty. There was like all this moss and all this green stuff on the water. And we're like, we will give you 50 bucks if you will swim out into the water come up in the moss like a Navy SEAL and look around and go back under, right? That's what we would do. Did my status at any point change? No. Had we gotten arrested for swimming where we shouldn't have been swimming in this public pond, I would have still gotten in trouble as an adult, okay? It's my status that defines me, not my acts. In the same way, when you become a Christian, your status is righteous. You're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted, everything's going to be okay. But we still commit. We still go back to these childish ways. We still commit these acts of sin, but that's not your identity. That's not your identity. 
Look back at verses 24 through 25a, and then we'll be done. I know this was a lot of text. Three things I want you to see. What is the solution for this? For sinners that are broken, there's no good in our flesh. We cannot follow God's law. What is our only solution? Verses 24 through 25a says three things I really want you to see. The first thing Paul says is he says, wretched man that I am. You have to recognize how wretched you are. You have to recognize that we are sinful, that we are broken, that in our natural state we stand under the wrath of God. We deserve only hell. We deserve only condemnation. We deserve only bad things. So the first thing that Paul recognizes here is wretched man that I am. He realizes his need to be saved. He realizes his brokenness and his sin. The second thing he says is who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice that he's looking outside himself for the solution. He doesn't say, wretched man that I am, I'm going to try better or try harder. Wretched man that I am, I'm going to try to keep God's law. He says, wretched man that I am, I need help from outside of me. I need someone or something outside of me to help me. Who will deliver me? I need deliverance. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I can't do it. I'm wretched. So he says, wretched man that I am, he realizes his wretched estate in his flesh. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He cries out for somebody who's not him. In Christianity, the problem is inside you and the solution is outside you, okay? A lot of people thinking in culture think it's the other way around. They think the problem is outside them and they're really the solution. It's the other way around in Christianity, okay? And then look at the third thing. This is his answer to the question of who will deliver him. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm wretched, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I cannot keep God's law, I cannot save myself. Who will deliver me? Who will save me? Please, somebody, who is the rescuer? And biblically, that rescuer is Christ, is Christ. If you are not a Christian, I want you to focus on these verses this week. I want you to go home and I want you to, do you see that you're wretched? Do you see that you stand under the wrath of God? Do you realize that you can't save yourself? You can't clean yourself up. You can't do better. And will you cry out like Paul does that your solution is Christ and Christ alone? If you're a believer, whatever sin you're struggling with, would you focus on these verses this week? Would you realize that you are still broken, that there is still a darkness within you because you are not fully redeemed yet? Yes, you are in God's eyes, but one day you will no longer even struggle with sin. Will you realize that you're broken and wretched? Will you realize that your salvation comes from without? And will you cry out and ask Jesus to help you with whatever your sin is? You see, the way you grow in holiness is the same way you got saved, repentance and faith in Christ. It's the same for both. It's the same for both. Let me pray as the uh, volunteers helping serve communion come forward. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I pray that if I have misinterpreted it, that you would forgive me. Uh, I pray that you would uh, be with us as we go about this week on a text that's kind of technical and there's a bunch of I and back and forth. I just pray that you would remind us of these things, that in our flesh we're broken and we need Christ. And I pray that you would also let us know that struggling is still part of the Christian life. That we shouldn't look around and think that we're the only ones struggling, we're the only ones doubting, we're the only ones hurting. I just confess that for most of my Christian life, I feel like everybody just seemed to, to gets it. Everybody just seems to get it better than me. But I thank you that we all feel that way. And so would you, uh, would you help us? We thank you for this text. We look forward to Romans 8, where we get to see uh, good news, where we get to see the work of the Spirit in our lives. We ask now that you would bless this uh, time of communion. It's in Christ's name. Amen.